if you believe that that person has an equally valid truth as you do, that conversation is going to go much better than if you think that your truth is right and their truth is wrong. Hey, we're Eggshells, the podcast exploring disagreement and how to do it better. We ask how we can make difficult conversations easier to have by exploring solutions to the challenges we all face when having them. All right then, Hannah, today we're going to talk about truth. What is truth? (laughs) I love how you just got straight to the biggest question. Yeah. Just headline, what is truth? Are you going to tell me what it is by the end of this episode? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, obviously. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I've restyled myself as the all-knowing. So Wonderful. luckily, <laughs> by the end of this episode, we will all understand what is true and what isn't, the essence of truth. Okay, look, I'm going to level with you. I don't know that we're going to understand anything by the end of this episode because truth is an entirely evasive thing, really, to start with. My dad has always said through my whole life, facts don't exist which is an unstable foundation to (laughs) to build a child's life on (laughs) and has pissed off several of my boyfriends who are very who tend to be quite logical practical human beings but yeah the point is that the truth is a slippery beast yeah and so I think that the truth of someone's experience is a very very important thing or has been a very very important thing to me and that's what I thought today's episode was going to be about I thought that the message was going to be a little bit like what we heard Georgia say at the top of this episode which I do think is really important that if you come into a conversation and you already validate the truth of someone else's experience rather than coming in thinking that you're right and they're wrong or whatever that's a really important premise for a useful and constructive disagreement rather than a shouting match. Sure. But that's actually not what this episode is going to be about at all. (laughs) (laughs) Because otherwise it would already be done. Yeah. Instead, also, the other thing I was thinking about, and this isn't a fully formed thought, but I think that, (laughs) you know, a podcast is a really great non-private way of airing my new thoughts that I'm just having. Definitely. I think part of the reason that I've been able to put so much faith in the idea of the truth of experience is that often the truth of my experience lines up with the truth of a societal narrative. Mm -hmm. I I haven't had a lot of times in my life where something that I've experienced hasn't been ultimately validated by systems around me. Yeah. Um, And as I've grown up, and understood more about and and basically understood more about being a woman and figuring out that in the world actually a lot of what I experienced there isn't language for insofar as we've got a long way to go to yeah you know what I'm saying so that truth is harder the truth of being a woman especially in certain situations is just it's harder to express isn't isn't supported the truth of my experience in that example isn't mm-hmm. as supported by the world yeah so 
and I know that's true for a lot of people in a lot of different ways yeah so yeah not so convinced about the truth of experience anymore but that is where we're going to begin okay so Georgia was who we heard from at the top of the episode and Georgia is who we're going to continue to hear from Georgia is a translational neuroscientist she's interested in neurodevelopment global mental health women's mental health and neuroethics like we all are of course yes <laughs> just like us <laughs> we're the same Harney. we're the same so Georgia had some really interesting reflections on truth mm-hmm. as you'll well remember So we're going to dive straight into a metaphorical story that she tells. It's the elephant story. Hands up if you've heard the elephant story, listeners. Uh, It's so good. It's so good. Okay, (laughs) Hannah's heard it and we're going to share it with you now. Here we go. What is your relationship as a scientist with truth? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think when you're early in a science career, you feel like what you're searching for is the truth, right? That is where I think people come into science. You're searching for the truth. You're searching for what's happening. You're searching for a way to explain why things are a certain way. And to be able to do that, you have to believe that there is one reason for that, you know, or a reason for that. But I'm not sure that I necessarily think that, as in, there's, how should we explain it? I think there are so many different ways of explaining the same thing. And just because one thing is true doesn't mean another thing isn't true. So the thing that comes to mind to explain it is actually from like more religious points of view. So there's some fable, and I can't remember what religion it is. I feel like it's an Indian religion. But anyway, there's this metaphor if that's the right word, of there's this big elephant and everyone, do you know which one I'm talking about? And everyone's blind and there's this big elephant and one person who's touching the foot is saying, no, this is the truth. It's this this big thing that's kind of round and it's got these kind of toenail-like things and that is what the truth is. And someone else is touching the trunk and they're like, no, that's not what it is. It's this big muscular thing that moves in funny ways. I remember this as, and again, we need to fact check this, but I remember this as blind people, t- and so they touch the leg and then they go, well, I'm, I'm holding a tree yeah. because this is the yeah, tree trunk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then they touch the trunk and they're like, well, this is a snake. Yeah. I'm holding a, I'm holding a snake. And then they touch the tail and they're like, well, this is a feather duster. I can't remember the tail one, but you know what I'm saying? No, exactly. And I think that that is, I really like that metaphor because none of those people are wrong. But there is just a bigger thing that we can't see yet. And there's so many levels to it, isn't there? Because each of, to each of those people, that is the truth. And you can argue as much as you want. One person saying it's a snake, one person saying it's a tree. Are you going to get anywhere with that? Probably not, because they know those things and their senses and everything that they're about tells them that it's those things. But I guess is, the question is, is that where the truth is? Or is the truth that there is an elephant? Do you know what I mean? And I don't know. The answer yeah. is I don't have a clue. Is there an elephant? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. It feels like you're talking about the truth of, of experience, which is a truth that I have, that I stand by, frankly. I tend to think that experience gives you a real clue to the truth. I tend to respect people's experiences as they have influenced their own truths. And that's a really good metaphor for reminding us that 
each of our own experiences is only part of a collective truth that we can only get to by stepping back, I guess. Yes, exactly. And what that collective truth is. Yeah, I like that way. That's a really nice way of talking about it, as in this collective truth. But then the question is, what is that collective truth? Is that collective truth a reality, a elephant, or actually is it years, generations and generations of experience that has meant that it becomes something, but it may not be an objective thing that is just there. It's just a collective understanding of how it all is. I don't know what the answer is. What do you think? <laughs> What's the answer? What's the answer, Hannah? Oh, God, now I'm even more confused <laughs> than I was when we started. And, I mean, I was there when we interviewed Georgia, so I've heard her say that before. <laughs> and now re-listening, I'm like, oh, God. What? What is the truth? Okay. <laughs> um, well, should we unpack some of what she, what yes. she says? So... Firstly, the story of the elephant, I've seen articles that say it's from Hinduism, Buddhism and Jainism. So there are roots of the story in all of those uh, Indian based religions. And yeah, it's these six blind guys, an elephant turns up in their village and they're like, yeah, I want to go see an elephant. And they all touch these different parts of the elephant and they say, oh, the elephant is just like a snake. Oh, the elephant is just like a rope is the tail one. Then some old wise man comes along and sees them all arguing. They're just arguing and arguing and arguing. Yeah, it's like this, it's like this. Mm-hmm. And the old man is like, you're all wrong and you're all right. And then there's a poem that was subsequently written, I think in the 19th century, maybe 18th century, by some American white dude. And that's how the story got popularised. Go figure. <laughs> um <laughs> What a surprise. Yeah, but he makes a point in the last stanza of his poem that says they were arguing about this thing that actually none of them had seen. Right. So that sort of took it to another level for me. Like they've all experienced it, but none of them have actually seen the the bigger picture, which I know is the point. But Mm. I felt a nuanced difference between they'd really experienced their small part of it. Mm And even together, even if they had put their collective truths together and accepted, okay, maybe part of it is like a snake and part of it is like a rope and part of it is like a tree, they still wouldn't have been able to draw an elephant. Yes, yeah. Just picking up on what you're saying about their experience, their individual experiences were just one tiny part of it. And I think that's where it's not to deny their experience. Not at all but their experiences are not very broad. No. So that makes it more confusing, I suppose, because it's not that theirs is untrue. No. But they are not able to see outside of their experience to an alternative truth. But this is where we start to get to trying to find the word truth, Yeah. right? Because... What is true to one person just might not be the truth to someone yeah. else. And so therefore, what is the the truth, you know? Yeah. And I do think there are different ways of defining that word 
there's one's individual truth and then yeah other kinds of truth but as georgia says so pertinently like what is the elephant is there even an elephant yeah and is the elephant actually just generations of experience built up you know something that's very accepted that actually isn't true yes you know yeah and i think you could link that to so many things that are ingrained into society and some people's reactions to you know when people say things like that's just the way things are yes which is the most infuriating thing for someone to say (laughs) but that follows that kind of narrative i think of like well this is just it's always been like this for centuries so why would we question it yeah yeah that's a version of their truth yeah so it sounds like it's just taking us further down the the rabbit hole that I opened up at the start of the episode, which is basically the truth of someone's experience is a is a type of truth. Yeah. But in this episode, if we're really trying to talk about truth, as in the truth that has been threatened by <laughs> truth that has been threatened by populism and by a lot of activity on social media, where truth doesn't seem to be important. anymore you know how can we talk about that kind of truth how can we anchor ourselves in this post-truth world post-truth world Ah. (laughs) Ah. yeah and so one way that people try and do that i think is by using statistics because people go okay right well this is something that has been you know a statistic gives you the sense that something has been qualified and absolutely there's been some work done about this and this number means something yeah there's something about a statistic that can feel very reliable yeah trustworthy yeah it feels like you can use it to prove something yeah yeah all right should we see if that's true yeah speaking of of truth Let's talk about statistics for half a second. Because aren't they true, Georgia? No, (laughs) definitely not. (laughs) They make it so much. This is a big bee in my bonnet and I think most scientists' bonnet. Statistics can be used to do anything. And it's all about how you measure things. And I think we've got to a point in the world and in the media that someone says oh 70% of blah 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 does this and that is the ground truth and we're expected to believe that and if someone says that that's the end of the conversation because there's no more discussion to be had but that's completely incorrect because statistics can come from anywhere you can you know if you do it badly you can use it to prove whatever you want to prove because It's about how you recruit people to make those statistics. So if you want to say, I made this product and 99.9% of people who have used this product, let's say it's the shampoo or something, have thought it was the best shampoo that has ever been used. And that's what you're wanting to say. You can quite easily get those statistics because you you can interview people who you know you could interview people in the company that you're at in you can select people that you know really enjoyed it because they went back and bought that shampoo five times if you're only selecting those people to ask of course you're going to get that answer so we can't trust statistics (laughs) cool 
the foundations shake more and more <laughs> under our poor feet. No, it doesn't sound like we can. Because it's too much work, isn't it? Like, you can't look yeah. at the side of a shampoo bottle and be like, oh, I wonder how they collected those. Like, you can't. I did. I had a small Google in preparation for this episode. Yeah. And it was a very small Google. I didn't spend a lot of time doing it, but just to see whether there's like some sort of truth telling system that you can run a statistic through and have it be like, no, they collected this statistic badly. So don't trust it. There doesn't seem to be a magic machine on the internet (laughs) that tells you whether or not a statistic is reliable. Because the other thing that my small Google did teach me is that like a statistic is a, is a mathematical thing. I'm so sorry for any mathematicians listening to this. Please forgive my incredible lack of vocabulary on this subject. But a statistic isn't wrong. The interpretation of the data is wrong. So the analysis of the statistic and the way that the data is presented or the the way that the statistic is presented or the context in which it's presented. Wrong is probably too strong a word, is, is disingenuous. Yes. Yeah. So not the statistic itself. No, you can't be like, you're a bad statistic. Because it, in a, in its mathematical sense, is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Yeah. But the process and also possibly the interpretation or the context mm-hmm. in which the statistic is used mm-hmm. is the thing that's questionable. And that's where the humans have come in. The maths isn't lying. It's the humans that are lying. Yeah. Because we do that, don't we? We do. But, I mean, it's a powerful thing. I'm not someone who particularly will whip out a statistic in a disagreement but there's something about if you can work out or like well actually I think you'll find that one in three women blah de blah de blah whatever it is that you're discussing can be quite a powerful tool yeah no exactly because what are you supposed to say to that you know if you say to me well one in three women blah 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 is that a statistic or is it like, oh, that's probably a statistic. I don't even know what the definition of a statistic is. It's embarrassing. I'm doing an entire episode on truth. Anyway, <laughs> I've just told the truth, you guys. But yeah, all that I would be able to say in that circumstance, 70% of people disagree with you. I'd be like, okay, but how was that data collected? Who are these people? What part, What portion of the population do they actually represent? Yeah. How many of them were there? Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. You don't know the answer to those questions. You've just found a statistic on the internet that you're yeah. telling me because it backs up your argument. And so the disagreement is stalled. Yeah. Because no one has any further information. Yeah. And so that just <laughs> on has, either side. On either side, I imagine. <laughs> so that just has to be thrown out. Yeah. Essentially. So yeah. yes, it is a real blocker when it comes to a smooth, connected conversation because yeah. it just throws something in that can't be trusted. Yeah. Having, you know, spoken to Georgia about it and we're here discussing it now, it feels like throwing statistics around is just a very lazy way Mm. of trying to prove something or win an argument. Yeah. And like you say, disingenuous, maybe without even meaning to be disingenuous. No, exactly. I don't think that anyone has been like, oh, ah, cunning. I will get some (laughs) bad information and then trick people. No, we generally... I, I think are encouraged to trust statistics. Yeah. And that's Georgia's point. Yeah. She's saying that as a scientist, as somebody who literally collects research information mm. all the time and presumably tries to be thorough and truthful, mm. she finds that they aren't truthful yeah. and thorough a lot of the time. 
So yeah, it doesn't give us as people who aren't actually statistic collectors or statisticians or people creating statistics, it doesn't give us a lot of power to no. use them properly in conversation. No. No. Okay, out with the statistics. Okay, bye. Bye, <laughs> statistics. Because part of the problem is that they have humans coming in and yeah. mucking them up. And part of the problem with humans is our bias. George's yeah. got quite a lot to say about bias. George's work at the moment centres around autism. And I thought this was quite a useful way of her talking quite personally about how in her own work she's mitigating bias. But hopefully you'll think, I mean, I think it resonates a bit more widely than that. Cool. How can one obtain a non-biased data set and how can one know that that's what one is dealing with? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is something that is such a bee in my body. I think we all need to be taught how to critically appraise because it's integral to everything. And the answer is nothing can ever be unbiased because it's collected by people and people are inherently biased. But you can do a lot to try and minimise your bias. And when you do it, you can acknowledge what your bias is. How do you mitigate bias in your research specifically? Um, Do you have any examples? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what I do actually is focusing on bias at the moment. I'm really interested in it. And I think one way that I'm trying to do that at the moment, actually two ways I'm trying to do that at the moment, is the problem in the area of autism research at the moment is that there's been almost no focus on how, like, if I say socioeconomic status, does that make sense? It's kind of, a, yeah, it's a mixture of income, education levels, etc. that uh, feeds into someone's environment that they're living in or growing up in. And there's been a little bit of research that has shown quite strong evidence that socioeconomic status has a huge impact in child development. I mean, that we know that anyway in terms of long-term outcomes of health, and mental health but also in more cognitive outcomes as well so academic outcomes but there's been almost very little autism research as in understanding how socioeconomic status or background might impact how someone might get an autism diagnosis so a lot of things like that would be social elements like how easy it is it for them to access healthcare. And that often changes in different settings so it might be you know in the UK we don't worry about cost but we might worry about resources or ability to be able to get to the local uh, GP surgery for whatever reason that's not a very good example but whereas in other countries like the US you worry maybe about cost more and I think that not looking at something like socioeconomic status it means that you have biased results or biased data collection because it's not only that you're not looking at it, but just the way research is often conducted, it's often conducted in very particular groups of people. So, for example, they might be groups of people who go to a particular um, hospital that might be in a particular area where people are more high income than low income. And that is quite normal across the board. I think a lot of research that's done, unless they specifically focus on populations or groups of people that are in low-income settings they usually focus on high-income settings because often it's just easier to do and so one way that I'm trying to mitigate bias in the area that I am in is really looking at 
different samples of people, so from different socioeconomic status, from different cultures within the UK and not in the UK. So another big issue we have is that most of our research in autism comes from the US and the UK. And that means that our whole idea of what autism is and how it manifests itself and how people behave is based entirely on a Western concept and a high-income Western concept of what autism is. And the question is, is that, can we do that? Is there just one way autism presents itself? Highly unlikely, right? Because different cultures, different environments will impact how anyone behaves, and therefore it will impact how certain behaviours, for example, in autism, um, are also manifested. So I guess a way that I'm trying to mitigate bias in my work is to really expand the way that the populations and groups of people that we work with in this research to not just be high income western cultures basically and another way is looking at women and not just men because that's another problem with autism research is it's very much considered a or has been for generations a male disorder and more and more researchers finding that there's just a slightly different way it might be presented in females than males and why are we missing people are we missing people because there's a bias in how people perceive what autism is. So that means that parents might not even think about autism being an option for their child who's a, a girl. It impacts how clinicians might see it. So a clinician might not think that that's even an option for a diagnosis. It impacts how our tools are created. So we create tools to assess what autism is and what it isn't. And if those tools are created which they have been on almost all male samples that will affect how um you can assess what autism is and it just goes on and on and on and on like that we're so biased in the way all these things have started that we really need to take a step back and think about the impact at every level and how we can try and remove some of that bias What do you think? <laughs> well, yeah. So obviously that was a lot about autism. Yeah, of course. But I feel like a lot of what she said, well, you I can think extrapolate it out to talk about a lot of things. Yeah, about basically everything. She's, she's talking about systems, isn't she? Yeah, she's talking about, you know, how the the data she was looking at, or she currently still looks at, it's very westernised. Well, you could For apply example. that to so many things. And then how they look more at men than they do at women. Well... We know we can apply that to lots of things too. So, yes. yeah, I think, you know, she might be working very specifically in that area, but it applies to so many things outside. Totally. It's a great, I mean, that's so often to tell a story looking at an individual example is so much easier. But yeah. I just thought that the way she laid it out with such detail, obviously she's hugely considered her work. Yeah. It's just such a clear, you know, the reflection, as you say, on men and women and on Western society and on different um, socioeconomic statuses. Mm -hmm. It's so clear that when we say person for so long, we have actually meant cisgendered, able-bodied white man yeah. from the Western world mm -hmm. in, in our context, at least. Yes, yes. It's so amazing. Uh, that's a lot for science to have to unpack. The, the the systems that we've built means that science has to then go, fuck, you know, we've yeah. really got a lot of yeah. work to do to start to consider other people. Yeah. And just talking about this now, I just find it quite amazing that we've bought that and we haven't questioned that for so long. I mean, 
of course, I'm sure some people have questioned things along the way, but yes, that's true. Collectively speaking, in on the sort of bigger picture scale, yeah. we've all bought into all of those biases. Yeah. But this is important. This is the critical thinking that George is encouraging yeah. for all of us. This is work that we can all be. Yeah. It's yeah. It's my responsibility to think critically about stuff. Yeah. Speaking of which, I want to ask you a left-field question. What bias do you think you have brought to eggshells so far? Oh, that's a good question. And now I'm going to take ages to answer. <laughs> yes. cool. You know how I love to be put on the spot. <laughs> I know, we've got to get out of our comfort zone there, Hannah. Do you mean bias in terms of the making of the podcast? Oh, anything. Between us two? Or anything. do you mean... The people we've spoken to in the interviews and stuff. Anything. Oh, God, I don't I want to give a good answer, Lizzie. You don't have to give a good answer. You give a terrible answer. If you want. <laughs> um, maybe I had a worry that... I don't even know if this is a bias, but I'm going to say it. Yeah, yeah. I think I had a worry that, oh, God, we're like... Two women making a podcast of a certain level of privilege, I suppose. And, you know, maybe people are less inclined to listen to women talking about issues or maybe women mm. maybe will be too emotional about it. Oh, interesting. Um, and so you had a bias against us. I had a bias against us, basically, <laughs> which goes against my belief system. I don't believe that women are annoying or that what we have to say is over-emotional or not as interesting as if it were two men. But I do feel that culturally, and it's changing a, a lot now, but for a long time, men were just considered more interesting and more funny and more likeable to listen to. Mm -hmm. And I somewhere in there, I think I brought that along in the beginning and put a bit of pressure on myself to like don't be annoying well shit <laughs> I don't think you're annoying thanks <laughs> I don't think I'm annoying either okay good I need to be very clear I don't think I'm annoying and I'm Great. sorry sorry for anyone out there who does think I'm annoying oh someone's gonna think we're all annoying but I'm, don't even worry I'm about okay that. with that yeah um but I think it was an interesting thought process to be like oh I went there oh that's interesting wow but I remember this. I'm really going off topic now, but fine. I lived with some boys once and they had their mates around. And I can't remember the context of the conversation exactly, but I remember one of their mates saying they were talking about comedians. Mm. And one of them very, very seriously was saying, Look, you know, like, obviously women can be funny, but like they are less funny because they just haven't had as much practice as men. Oh my God. And. I was like, wow, at the time, I didn't know how to respond to that. <laughs> now I'd have a lot of fucking shit to say <laughs> to a comment like that. But, yeah, I think that bias that, you know, men just, they've lived out in the world more than us. They've got more experience than us. They've got more shit to say. They're funnier. Has been ingrained into our belief systems. And it's definitely changing now. Wow. God, as soon as you said that, I was like, what would I, what would I have said to him? What would yeah. I have said to him? 
I don't know, out in the world, why does that have anything to do with whether or not you're funny? They're totally unrelated things. Well, I guess he was meaning in the context of well, men have had more opportunity to stand up on a stage and be funny. Yeah, practice makes perfect. But when one man does, I don't think, just because my friend Hattie's a comedian, the fact that she's a comedian doesn't make me more funny. No, no. <laughs> I mean, if I was to go and see her all the time and I don't know, obviously role models are important, mm-hmm. if that's the point. Yeah. That's obviously, I, I agree with that. But... That wasn't I, the point. Right. <laughs> just to be clear. Um <laughs> No, I don't... He was chatting shit. Okay, cool. I don't even know why I'm engaging with it. (laughs) And I've gone off on such a massive tangent away. Hannah, that's pretty much the best answer. I had no idea you were going to say that. (laughs) I had no idea you were going to say that. Neither did I. That's so great. Thank you you very much for thinking about that question and offering an honest answer. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And to be clear, I think... Women are as hilarious. As yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, fine. We don't have to do this. Um, <laughs> okay, fantastic. So, cycling back to truth. Yes. On the one hand, we accept that everybody has an individual truth. Yeah. On the other hand, we're starting to see the ways in which not all truths are created equal. <laughs> so, you might not have the whole picture. You might just be holding a part of an elephant. Mm-hmm. You might have some shitty information. Yep. that's being presented to you disingenuously or you might have biased information gathered in a broken system <laughs> fantastic <laughs> what are we supposed to do with that then cool how do we get to the truth well luckily georgia has a suggestion great What you learn from like a really early point in science is that the way that you try and minimise bias is by you never try and prove anything. In science, you can't prove something. You can only disprove something. And so the way that you try and search for the truth is you gather evidence and create a theory or a hypothesis around that evidence. And then you try and disprove it. Because as soon and this links to what we were talking about when we're talking about statistics is I think often statistics are used to prove something but actually if you're a good scientist and you're doing it in the right way you're never trying to prove something you're only able to disprove it you can never say science has proved this you know even evolution is very much accepted you still can't really say it's proven you can say that there's been nothing that we've been a a lot of people have worked on it a lot of people have tried to disprove it but it hasn't been disproved and we don't have a better theory to explain what we see. And I think that, sadly, I think science is often not done in that way. And that's what leads us into a lot of difficulties. And But I think that is a really key way that if it's done properly, it can really minimise bias. Because firstly, you're taking out the point at which someone's saying, I want this to be true. I'll prove it because you can always prove it. But you're also at every step, you've got a lot of people acting in order to try and disprove something. So hopefully with even just the amount of people that are trying to do that, that also minimises bias because hopefully there's a lot of different people in different places doing different things, using different methods, etc. So I think that's a really important way of thinking about science. And like I said, it's got us into a lot of trouble people not doing that. I've recently read a book called The Gendered Brain, which I really, really recommend, that is about how we got to the 
point that we are in, in terms of trying to see the, what's the difference between males and females' brain. And it's sort of irrelevant whether there is or not, because in science, you're not really wanting to prove one way or the other. But the way it's happened is that a lot of people are trying to prove there are differences. And if you look for differences, you will find differences because you always will find differences. And that's just bad science. So it leads us into a lot of problems. And things like that have been used for years and years and years to show prove that women were inferior to men or one race was inferior to another race. And that has happened time and time again. And it's essentially bad science being used to try and prove something. And you shouldn't try, you can't prove things. You can only just prove things. And the way that we do that is statistically, which comes back to this like statistical thing, is that you always try and you're, you're testing a null hypothesis. I don't know if you know what I mean by null hypothesis, but it's one of the first things you learn really in, in science, which is about not, the null hypothesis is saying there's no change, there's no difference. And that is what you're always looking at. You're never looking at if there is a change. You're always, always trying to disprove or exclude the null hypothesis. So you're not saying this other hypothesis I have, I want to prove it. You're saying, can I disprove that there's no change or no difference here? It's a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference in terms of how you look at things and how biased that might be. Yeah, I think that's that's so important as a mentality, thinking about disproving something uh, rather than proving it. And that's something that we can take forward. Yeah. I'll take I'm going to take that forward into my own life and try to remember that. I should always look to disprove rather than prove things that have been told to me as especially things that have been told to me as facts or what I've, stuff I've been raised on, especially that I might not even have that much information about. That's really interesting. And that null hypothesis thing, that's very difficult, isn't it? Because in a, in a sense, then, if you're proving something does change, if you're trying to prove something does change, as in you're trying to disprove that it doesn't change, I, I guess, yeah, but then you can use any outcome, any finding any outcome of change, you can use that to then try and prove whatever you want, but you should then be disproving that exactly. again when just you because, find it just out the, i think the other thing about it is just because you're disproving something doesn't mean it will always be this like if you're saying well actually this isn't the case you can also try and test it from another angle because it might be that you get a different result from a slightly different angle and that's problematic if you're trying to prove something but it's less problematic if you're trying to disprove something because you're kind of each step you think about it as a little nibble away at trying to get to where the truth is you're never able to jump there you're always just able to have many many steps because you're disproving <laughs> I really liked the the way I kind of image I had in my head was by trying to disprove something you're stripping the layers back like she says trying to get closer to the truth and it feels like yes trying to prove something feels like a more aggressive approach and she said it again herself if you're looking for things you'll find them yes and I couldn't apply that to many things in life you know if you're looking for terrible things to happen to you terrible things will probably happen to you but having had her lay that out the disproving just seems to be the better way to do things maybe she just because she articulated it so well yeah she did I think she articulated it really really well do you know what Han I think I'm going to stop us there okay because that's already quite a lot I think to get our heads around and 
where I want to take us next. I do have actually more to say about truth. Truth is quite a nice chunky topic, <laughs> but I think it's going to, it's going to put us in a slightly different headspace. Okay. So let's stop there. Let's take a pause. Cool. Let's go live our lives. Let's think about what we've thought about today. Do some processing. Do some processing. Any hot takeaways before we go? So my main takeaway would be awareness of your own bias. Mm -hmm. But also, there is bias everywhere. (laughs) So have an awareness of that too. And just carry all of that awareness of all the bias Mm -hmm. throughout your life. Yeah. And your conversations. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about you? Yeah, okay, strong. Um, I guess that, well, I know it's fresh in my brain because Georgia just was talking about it, but I like what she said about chipping away, little nibbles to get yeah. towards the truth. Because, you know, at the top of this episode, I was like, my dad taught me there are no such thing as facts. Well, dad, <laughs> I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> I'm going to chip away at things until I get to the truth knowing that that will be a lifelong journey and I'll never actually get there. But just help me. It's, it's just a nice way to think that it's, it's quite hopeful. Yeah, we're like, collectively, we're all in good faith, nibbling away. Yeah. And, and trying to get closer to that, that their truth. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay, love you, Han. Love you too. Bye. Bye. I think there are so many different ways of explaining the same thing. And just because one thing is true doesn't mean another thing isn't true. That was Eggshells. If you liked that episode, then tune into others about how to disagree better by visiting our website or searching for us on your podcast provider. Please like this podcast on Apple, give it a five-star review and tell all your friends about it. Support for independent podcasts like ours is vital and we hugely appreciate it. If you fancy getting in touch, we're at helloeggshells at gmail.com and we love a chat. Eggshells is hosted by me, Lizzie Bourne, and Hannah Leach. Our sound designer is Andreas Petru, and our music is by Willard Hill and Andreas Petru. Big thank you to Bex Arthur and Marcella Terrable, as well as all the beautiful guests featured on today's podcast. See you soon.